Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 24 through 37. So we're going to, Lord willing, finish up the the Olivet Discourse this morning. Uh, And I'll ask if you're able to do so that you stand for the reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 37, give you the reading of God's holy word. Jesus says, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning the day, uh, that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, I usually say uh, one of two things before, before we get into the sermon. I usually say the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. But Jesus gives us one right in the text, doesn't he? Heaven and earth will pass away, verse 31, but my words will not. It really, it's by no means. It's a much stronger way of phrasing it than even the ESV puts it here. It's, but my words will by no means pass away. Not a chance. Everything in the universe will pass away, but God's word, Christ's words will not pass away. Let's, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon our word, His word to us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for even these kinds of texts that we can find difficult at times. We thank you that you give them all to us for a reason, for our benefit. And we ask that you would uh, once again work in us by your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, Lord willing, this morning we're going to finish up our study through what is often referred to as the, the Olivet Discourse of Christ where he preached or taught this on the Mount of Olives across from the uh, the temple, which is basically the entire chapter of, of Mark 13. It's also found in parallel uh, passages in Matthew and Luke. Uh, they're both much longer than Mark's uh, version of it. Um, these, these verses that we're going to look at this morning, and really the whole chapter of Mark 13, are in some ways, in some ways it would have been better to have handled them all in one shot. Now, it would have been harder to do that, but the reason for that is, uh, you know, there are so many uh, different important details along the way that, uh, you know, the preacher, myself in this case, is, is kind of forced to choose between um, doing it one of two ways. You can either preach one really, really long sermon, 
on 37 verses, and I think the problems with that or the difficulties of that are much more obvious. Uh, or do what we've done is kind of break it down into uh, more manageable sections. Now, the problem with the former kind of sermon, the long sermon on one, the whole chapter, again, is probably obvious. It would be kind of ironic uh, talking with with, uh, with one brother here about about uh, staying awake during the sermon. You know, the last the last section of the text, what does he say? Four times, keep awake, stay awake, stay awake. Well, a long sermon would be kind of hard to do that. Uh, you know that even the the apostle Paul one time in the city of Troas preached until midnight, and some young men fell out of a third story window and died, and had to be brought back miraculously to life. Poor Eutychus even gets named. <laughs> he doesn't even get to be anonymous. You know, it's like Eutychus, the guy who fell asleep. Um, anyway, and uh, thankfully God brought him back. So we don't want to have any, we don't have a third story window here, but we don't want anybody falling and hurt themselves on the floor either. Uh, well, the other, on the other hand, taking it one little bit at a time, there's a, a whole different set of problems and difficulties that, or challenges that come with that kind of a pro- approach, which we have taken, which I've taken here. And that's the old, you know, the saying, you miss the forest for the trees. That's what you kind of tend to do. You get so caught up in the little details, not that they're unimportant, but that sometimes we can, we can miss the whole picture of what Christ is trying to say. Um, and we don't want to lose sight of the overall context of the passage as, in a lot of ways, the whole passage, the whole context of the passage tells you really how we are to take the individual parts of this of this text in a lot of ways. And so uh, we have to be careful not to miss the primary point of the overall passage when we go through these little bits by bits, uh, the, the big passage bit by bit in the uh, text. So the first thing that we're going to see in our text, I think, probably the first thing that jumped off the page at you when I read it, uh, is the Son of Man coming in clouds. What does Jesus say about the Son of Man in verse 26? Coming in clouds, he mentions there in that part of the passage that this coming in clouds was going to be accompanied by various uh, astronomical signs or displays, very impressive uh, signs, shocking displays in verses 24 to 27. Look at what Jesus says there. He says, but in those days after that tribulation, that's talking about what he said in verses uh, 14 to 23 mainly, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and then he shall he will send out the, the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, it's been said uh, by many folks that Verses 24 to 27, in some ways, are really the most difficult part of this passage. If you thought the, uh, the, uh, the, the abomination of desolation was confusing and difficult to figure out, and the tribulation spoken of in the passage before, the one we're looking at today, was difficult, in a lot of ways, this part is the most difficult part uh, of the text. Now, if you take it by itself... You know, a lot of times we have this bad habit, I think, of, of reading one little section of, of a, a passage of Scripture in isolation from whatever is around it. And sometimes, you know, we, we almost treat the Bible, if I can be forgiven for saying this, we treat the whole Bible like the book of Proverbs. You know, I yank a verse out here and, you know, interpret it by itself. I don't look at what's around it. It's almost like everything is disconnected. Or we take the chapter divisions in our Bibles and the verse numbers as if they were part of the inspired text and, and we, we read one chapter in isolation from what comes before it, which we shouldn't really do that in most, in most cases. Um, but if you were to take 
verses 24 through 27 by itself and not look at what's around it, it would be pretty easy to figure out in some ways what it says, sort of. You would get a very particular, I'm guessing, uh, interpretation of that of that passage. It looks very straightforward and uncomplicated. Here Jesus talks about the Son of Man, that's himself, coming in clouds with great power and glory, sending out his angels to gather the elect. Now if you take that in a straightforward, this is an overused word, we have to be careful how we use it, literal fashion, uh, the Lord seems to be speaking of his own return in glory, the second coming. And it's very easy to take this text as saying just that. A great many commentators, a great many respectable uh, godly reformed commentators have taken these verses to be talking about that very thing and it's easy to see why that's the case but the difficulty with that view of this particular text is when you take the whole context of the chapter along with it the rest of the chapter both what comes before it with the disciples questions about the destruction of Jerusalem in verses 1 through 4 and especially what comes after it in verse 30 where Jesus says the following he says truly I say to you this generation will what? Will not pass away until what? All these things take place. It's a difficult text. You've, you may have heard, and I've, I know I have heard and read many uh, very good, able preachers and commentators twist themselves into a pretzel trying to explain how Jesus wasn't mistaken when he's really talking about the second coming and it really didn't come in the first century and the generation uh, that he's talking about is really the entire church age or some such thing that would make no sense to his original readers or hearers in this case. Now first we have to determine uh, what Jesus meant by, quote, this generation. What does Jesus mean when he, say, when he said, this generation will by no means, it's not going to happen, pass away until... All these things come to pass. Now, the simplest and easiest way, I think, to take this, the most uh, surface-level reading of it, would, would, would demand that he's talking about the generation of people living at the time when he said these words. Is it possible he meant something else? It's possible, but it doesn't seem very likely. It seems like the plain meaning of the text, the meaning the disciples would have, I think, taken for sure, would have been that he was talking about the generation that was living on the earth at the time he said these words. And he said all these things would come to pass in their lifetime, within about 40 years, a generation or so. As far as the destruction of the temple in, of, in Jerusalem, verses 1 through 4 and 14 to 23 kind of make, talked about that. That's easy to see, right? It's easy to see how that part took place in the first, in that generation's Lifetime. It's uh, you know in verse thirty, Jesus Jesus didn't say in verse thirty that part of what I said was going to come to pass at that time. He said what? He said all these things, not some, all. All the things he said, I think, is referring to everything from verses one through twenty nine. I think that's really what he's saying. Everything I just said is going to come to pass before this generation passes away not just the destruction of the temple but everything and in in our part of the text in verses 24 to 27 that would include when he spoke of the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory so in fact it's what he just spoke about right before he says all these things it would be very hard to read this passage in any straightforward sense and have jesus say all these things 
but have him skip the last thing he just talked about. There's nothing in the text, there's nothing in the parallel text in Matthew or Luke that would lead us to that conclusion that Jesus really meant to skip that part and refer just to what went before it. Many have interpreted this text as if Jesus was somehow speaking of two separate and mostly unrelated things. In other words, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and the second coming of Christ. Those things are separated by now almost 2,000 years, and we don't know when Christ is going to return even yet. If it's going to be in our lifetime or if it's going to be after our lifetime, we don't know. No less of an expositor of Scripture than J.C. Ryle himself. You all know how much I, I like him says the following about these verses, verses 24 to 31, he says, This part of our Lord's prophecy on the Mount of Olives is entirely unfulfilled. The events described in it are all, all yet to take place. It's obvious the way he's taking these verses. If he's talking about the second coming, he's right. Of course, that has not happened. We are not Jehovah's Witnesses. We do not believe Jesus came back secretly. In 19, whatever it was, 1917 or whatever the year was, they, they, you know, they did what Jesus said not to do, right? Jesus, and later in the text, no man knows the day or the hour. Well, they, they picked the year, and I believe they picked the date as well, and then when it didn't happen, what did they do? Oh, you know, we weren't wrong. I'm, I'm being facetious, but they said, you know, he came back secretly. He came back invisibly, right? Do we believe as Christians that Jesus came back the second time already and invisibly and no one's... That was it? No. That is non-biblical. That is heretical. That's not what we're saying here in this text. The second coming has not taken place yet. It is yet to come. We confess it every time we confess the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. From thence, he shall come to what? To judge the living and and the dead. Now, most of you, I think, know how high of a regard I have for J.C. Ryle and others. I have quoted him approvingly in this pulpit I don't even know how many times, and I'm sure, Lord willing, I will continue to do just that in the future. I'm not condemning his his commentary. I I like it very much. Uh, But his statement there about verses 24 to 31, I think, is very difficult to reconcile with the idea of Jesus saying all these things will come to pass before that generation passed away. And so he's not alone in that regard. In fact, he's probably in the majority in that regard. Um, R.C. Sproul, in his very helpful book, uh, The Last Days According to Jesus, a little confession on my part. I read that book when it first came out, and I thought it was his worst book I ever read. Of all the ones I read, I thought that was the the worst one. I I didn't care for it. I didn't understand it. Uh, I didn't appreciate it until recently when I reread it in working on uh, these sermons. Uh, He writes this. He says, If both this generation, quote, and, quote, all these things are taken at face value, then either all the content of Jesus' Olivet Discourse, including the parousia, that means the coming of Christ, including the parousia he describes here, have already taken place in some sense, or at least some of Jesus' prophecy failed to take place within the time frame assigned to it. Evangelical scholars have opted for some form of the former option, and critical scholars for the latter. Right, the, the, the scoffers, the skeptics, the critics, what do they say? Jesus was wrong. See? And so what do we do? We scramble to try to explain how this is, is you know, really is, is uh, not the case. Uh, but, it, it, you know, in some ways, I have to say that the, the critical scholars, in some ways, I think are looking at the text, at least half of it, 
uh, in a more plain sense than many of our, of our brothers who uh, twist themselves into pretzels trying to explain uh, this this away. Now, uh, what do they do? The, the, the skeptics say Jesus was mistaken. Is Jesus mistaken? Was Jesus wrong here in, in Mark chapter 13 in the parallel passages of the skeptics? What are they doing? They're pouring contempt on the scriptures. They're saying that they're not really inspired, that they're not inerrant, that they're not infallible. Now, we don't want to make the objections of skeptics the controlling factor in how we interpret scripture. That is not a safe uh, way to go about it. Lots of things they object to, we couldn't possibly uh, you know, explain their way. They don't like the resurrection of Christ either. Are we going to make that not bodily? Or are we going to say, oh, well, he secretly came back in his body? You know, but that, that's, what, that's what, what unbelieving scholars, so to so-called, do. But that being said, I think we have to find a reasonable explanation and interpretation of what Jesus says here in this passage. He certainly was not mistaken in any way. The scriptures are not in error here or anywhere else. As he says, his words never uh, pass away. So what's the explanation? If the entire Olivet Discourse, uh, if it's about uh, the surrounding, the events of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, how do we understand verses 24 to 27? The context is most certainly the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, right? But this part of the passage, it, it, in some ways to us, seems to stick out like a sore thumb. How, do, how does it fit with that with that view? Why, you know, did Jesus come again in some way, as Sproul says, within that generation, within about 40 years of Jesus teaching the Olivet Discourse? And if he did, how? Well, I think the answer to this problem, this dilemma... Uh, is in his use, Christ's use, of the Old Testament prophetic imagery. Look again at what he says in verses 24 to 26. He says, But in those days, Jesus says, after that tribulation, what does he say? The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from, from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, is this not the very same language that you see in the Old Testament prophetic books? Look, for example, if you if you have a Bible there, look at Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah 13, verses 9 through 11. Now, we just read through Isaiah, and if you recall, it's a very long book, 66 chapters, right? And, and what, what does Isaiah do throughout the early parts of the book is he, God gives Isaiah these, these oracles of, of judgment upon the various nations. And he includes Jerusalem in that. He includes Israel and, and Judah in those judgments. But in, in Isaiah 13, there's an oracle given uh, by the Lord to Isaiah of destruction on Babylon. Babylon is in his sights. You know, Babylon was going to be the the, the, uh, the nation, the wicked nation that God used in a, in a way to judge, to chastise his people. But that didn't mean Babylon was getting off scot-free, did it? Look at what he says in Isaiah 13, 9 through 11. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes. The day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Here it is. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant, that's Babylon, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Same kind of imagery. The stars of the heavens, the constellations, are, will not give their light. The sun 
will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed or give its light. God's judgment on Babylon was called by God the day of the Lord. That's a a phrase that very often, if not always, refers to some kind of, if you can use this phrase, some kind of coming of the Lord, whether it be in judgment uh, or for his people at the end of time. Um, Not only that, but uh, the coming of the Lord in judgment is often also portrayed in the Old Testament prophets as involving clouds. Come as, as God coming in clouds or coming down in clouds. Isaiah 19.1, it's another oracle of God's judgment, this time upon, upon the land of Egypt. And there it speaks in, in 19.1 of Isaiah of the Lord riding on a swift cloud. The Lord Did, did the Lord show up bodily in, in Egypt in Isaiah's day or, or not long after Isaiah's day? I don't think that's what he's saying, but he talks about the Lord coming to judge Egypt, riding on a swift cloud. Clouds are often a, a picture of God's presence, sometimes for good, sometimes for judge. Remember the, during the wilderness wanderings, what was the symbol of God's presence? This, the cloud, the glory cloud, right? That gave them shade during the day and light and heat uh, by night. And this was a picture of God's coming to Egypt in judgment. Now that was not a visible coming of the Lord, was it? In Egypt's case, but nevertheless, Isaiah speaks of it as a coming of the Lord in judgment in clouds. Likewise, 2 Samuel 22, verses 7 to 16. uh, This is David writing about how God, how the Lord, his God, had finally delivered him from the hand of Saul. Remember, Saul tried to kill David, chased him all over the place, and did his best to, to pursue him and to kill him. In 2 Samuel 22, verses 7 to 16, <clears throat> figures I picked long text this morning, right? This is what David says. In my distress, this is also in Psalm 18, by the way. In my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God. I called from his temple. He heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. God came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him. His canopy, thick clouds. There's clouds again. A gathering of water out of the brightness before him. Coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord. Now, I I don't know that any of those visible manifestations uh, occurred at all when God God struck down Saul and and spared David's life. There may have been some. I I don't know. I don't honestly know. Uh, but what, is, what does David do? <clears throat> David picks up Old Testament imagery of God's judgments, including the flood probably, and, and use them as a picture of God answering his prayer and judging Saul. You know, if you were to read a secular history, not, I don't know that there is one, of, of the events surrounding Saul's death. You know, just like you read the paper now, don't read too much into that but but you know you you would probably not think of god being involved in it at all 
oh, you know, Saul went in battle and something bad happened and he ended up falling on his sword because he was going to lose and, you know, whatnot. That's not how it happened. And it certainly isn't how David saw it. David read it through God's providence. David saw it as God judging his enemy. As God judging his wicked enemy who, who would have sought his life on many occasions, who repaid his kindness with, uh, with evil in many ways. But he uses the same kind of, of, of pictures, Old Testament prophetic imagery, of God's judgment, even God's coming in judgment, to describe what God did in saving him from Saul. Now, when we recognize that Jesus, I think, is using the same kind of imagery as the Old Testament prophetic oracles of judgment, I think it becomes clear, more clear at least, that the Olivet Discourse is at least primarily, primarily about God's judgment upon unbelieving Israel on that day, culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70, and really effectively bringing to an end the Jewish age. The Jewish, if I can use this word in reform circles, dispensation of how he was doing things on this earth. I think that that makes a lot of these difficulties in this chapter become resolved. Much more easy to understand how it all fits together. And now in that case, maybe you're sitting here reading your Bible and going, what about verse 27? What about verse 27? How is that, how is that in any way explainable in that, in that scenario? Well, I think in that case, the word angels spoken of in verse 27, you know, the ones who were God was using to gather his elect, uh, many have said that that's, that's really a reference not to the judgment at the end of time, although it has an analogy to that, right? But to the preaching of the gospel to all the nations by the Lord's messengers. The word angel is also the same word for messenger. What, what are angels? Now, there are more than this, but they're, they're in one of their main functions is they're God's messengers. And so it's not necessary to read this, this passage as primarily or only about the second coming of Christ and the judgment at the end of the age. Now, that being said, the imagery applies to that, doesn't it? And I think there's where the confusion comes in. The same imagery that speaks of, that, that Jesus uses to speak of the judgment upon Israel in that generation in a, in, a, in a more literal sense, if I can use that phrase, in a greater sense, is going to be future and yet to come, but it's not what he's talking about primarily here, even though the imagery has a parallel to that. And now, some might say, I think understandably so, that this, this kind of an interpretation of our passage leaves us with uh, you know, no real present-day application for you and for me for believers in our day, in the here and now. And I, I don't think that's the case. I understand why somebody might think that. You know, it's indeed uh, certainly true that believers today, you and I, I don't think that we are necessarily uh, told here to be prepared to flee to the mountains, as Jesus says in verse 14, especially not the mountains outside of Judea. You and I do not live, at least right now, this moment in Judea. We are not waiting for the Roman armies to come in. I think there might be some application to God judging nations here in this passage. You know, if, if God judged Israel for their sin and wickedness, who are we in our day to imagine in any way that God might not do the same? We are not Israel, but God still judges nations for their sin and their wickedness. And we should be praying for revival, praying for God's mercy, praying for God to turn many from their sin to Christ in our, in our age. But, um, you know, verse 9, Jesus tells the disciples that you know, they, they were to expect to be, quote, beaten in synagogues. 
Now, it's possible. There are synagogues in this country, but I don't expect any of us to be beaten any of them any kind, anytime soon. Uh, but we, too, have to be on guard. Jesus calls for us to keep awake or stay awake, apply to us, and not just during long sermons. Uh, when I go through a longer text, we have to learn, as he says, the, the, the lesson of the fig tree or the parable of the fig tree. And one thing I think that we should learn from our text, there's a handful of things, uh, lessons for us to learn, is that we should have great confidence in the Word of God. You and I should have great confidence in the Word of God for the events prophesied by Christ here in the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13 were fulfilled within that generation just as he said they would be. I don't think we have to, you don't have to be afraid. You know, we don't, there's a lot of passages for me and for you that we read, we read through Isaiah. If, I, if you think I know everything about Isaiah, uh, you have a very inflated view of your pastor. Uh, I've I read a lot of those chapters and thought, what am I supposed to get from that? What am I supposed to say? How does it apply to us? I don't have the decoder ring. Maybe you do. If you do, let me borrow one. Um, but we should have great confidence in God's word. What does Jesus say again in verse 31? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He even says before that, assuredly I say to you, or it's really amen. It's like he, he brackets that, that, that saying about this generation before and after with sayings that it's like he's doubling down. He wants to make sure you, this jumps off the page to the reader that this, this is going to happen. And there's no getting around it. There's no avoiding it. The word of God cannot fail. Heaven and earth will one day pass away, but Christ's words will not. Not one of them will fall to the ground or be left unfulfilled. If, if, what's the bumper sticker? I hate to use bumper stickers, but you know, the one you might see, you know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, it's a bumper sticker, but it's not wrong. If God's word says it, uh, you can take it to the bank, so to speak. Well, a second lesson is that, uh, and it says it four times in our text, that we need to stay awake and alert. Jesus says there in verses 32 to 37, the last part of our text, he says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not the angel, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father be on guard, keep Awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey that he, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, not just the twelve, stay awake. Now, I, I, I'm guessing when you read that or when you heard me reading it, uh, your first thought wasn't the repetition of stay awake. Your first thought was about the sun not knowing the day or the hour. And what in the world does that possibly mean? Now, it's easy to, get, easy to get caught up in that question about what it means that the sun wouldn't know the day or the hour. And we could spend a lot of time on that. And I, will give, I will do my best to, to deal with that. Um, but I think in some ways, getting too wrapped up in that makes us miss the point. The, the point wasn't that. Uh, although there is an explanation for that. But as one writer puts it, he says, his purpose, it's Christ's purpose, his purpose was not to define the limits of his theological knowledge, but to indicate that vigilance, not calculation, is required. If if you read this text and you're not kind of warned away from breaking out your calendar and your calculator and your protractor and whatever decoder ring you think you have and trying to figure out when Jesus is going to come back, 
and you know you're going to go to the bookstore and get the next ten books on the the second coming because people are always picking dates and times and years. Uh, we've missed the point. We've missed the point entirely. We must avoid the temptation of what he calls calculation. We must avoid the desire to know the secret things that belong only to the Lord our God, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, and concern ourselves with what he has revealed to us in his word about his will for us, that we might do it. There's, there's plenty of things that the Bible reveals to us that God has given us and revealed to us that we can spend our time concerning ourselves with, and the secret things that he has not revealed uh, are just that. They belong to God and not to us, so let us be careful and not get caught up in speculation or calculation regarding the end times, regarding the date of Christ's return. Uh, do not fail for con men who seek to set dates and claim to know what Christ told us that he himself did not know. People keep people just keep on doing it. It's not just Harold Camping. It's any number of people that are always trying to be smarter than God. They're always trying to say that they, they know the inside scoop, and there's no edifying purpose in that whatsoever. It's not helpful at all, and it's not, it's not true. Now, what about Jesus not knowing? You know, perhaps he knows now. Perhaps, perhaps not. We don't know. We know that according to Christ's human nature, Jesus learned and grew. Not according to his divine nature, but according to his human nature, he learned and grew. Luke 2.52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Sometimes I think we read that as if it was kind of just a figure of speech. Well, Jesus, he's omniscient. Well, according to his human nature, he's not. According to his divine nature, he is. Now, how can I explain that? I don't want my head to explode here in the pulpit. That'd be gross. You know, we, we, There's mystery to it, right? There's only so much we can grasp about the incarnation of Christ, but it shouldn't be a shock to us to read that he did not know the date of his coming and judgment upon Jerusalem, or even maybe of his return at the end of this age, we do not mix, we must not mix or confuse the, the human nature of Christ with his divine nature. They do not cross over and bleed over his his body. You know, we talk about the Lord's Supper. Is Christ's body omnipresent? It's one of the reasons we reject transubstantiation. His body, he's a, he's a real human body. He is a real rational soul. He has a, his human nature is not make believe. His body has a location. And an address at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He's omnipresent according to his divine nature, but not according to his human nature. And so in the same way, we don't want to mix or confuse his two distinct natures that he has now forever after the incarnation for our salvation. That his body is not omnipresent, although his person is according to his divine nature. And he is uh, not necessarily in his human nature omniscient, even though according to his divine nature, he obviously is and always has been. But what's his point? His point, he says it four times. Keep awake or stay awake. Verses 33, 34, 35. I mean, four times in five verses he says the same thing. Stay awake, stay alert. Setting dates, trying to set dates, I think does the exact opposite of that. What do you do? Uh, you, you have, remember what it's like to be in school, maybe in college or seminary in a couple of our cases, and you have a due date for a paper. Now, I'm sure Dan did not do this, but I confess that I did. I very often would put off till the last minute starting my papers. And I would panic and drink too much coffee and do all kinds of things. Why? Because there was a due date. I knew when it was due. And I, okay, I've got this much time. I can still do what I want to do. And then, ah, the deadline comes up. 
you know, we, we start picking dates. What do you do? You kind of rest in what we might call carnal security. Oh, you know, well, I know Jesus is coming back here, you know, next next Thursday. And so I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to worry about, you know, preaching the gospel, paying my taxes. I hope he comes before April 15th, all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, it, it leads to lethargy. It doesn't lead to being awake. It doesn't lead to serving God. If, if Jesus was coming back next Monday, you know what we should do on next Sunday? Meet for worship. You know what you should do next week? Talk to your neighbor about the Lord. It doesn't change. It doesn't, that, the, the work he has assigned to us to do does not change. So we need to, to keep awake, stay awake. It must be about living to serve our King and our Savior, each of us having been given our work, whatever that is to do, to do in his name. We want to be found by our Master as those who are faithful servants, who stay awake and are ready for his return when he comes or calls. Well, one day the Lord Jesus Christ will return in glory visibly and bodily to judge the living and the dead, even as we confess every first Sunday in the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. And on that day, the prophetic language that we see employed in passages like this in Isaiah 13 and other places uh, is, is going to be uh, fulfilled in the most ultimate and most literal sense possible. Christ is going to come again one day and everyone will see him. As the Apostle Paul writes in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 18, he says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left, until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will, def- will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. For the unbeliever, for those who have refused at this point yet to turn to the Lord by faith and are still in their sins, that will not be a happy day. That will be a day of of horror. Too much, too terrible to think about. To those of you who are in Christ by faith, to those who have taken refuge in the Lord alone, it will be a blessed day. It's the, it's, it should be the day you look forward to more than anything else on this earth. The day of our great hope. No wonder Paul says in verse 18, that he tells us to what? Encourage one another with these words. You know, if you, if your study of eschatology of the end times as a, as a believer, if your study of the end times does not encourage you, there's something wrong. If, if you're getting yourself twisted up in pretzels and knots over the tribulation and this and that, and it's not something that makes your heart sore about thinking about being with the Lord forever, you're thinking about it wrong. And I'm thinking about it wrong. If you can't encourage one another with these words, uh, maybe rethink your view of these, of these words. And so I ask this morning again, as I try to do, are you in Christ by faith? Are you here this morning? Are you in, are you in your sins? Or are you in Christ by faith in Him? Is this return your great hope and joy because you are in Him and you know your sins are forgiven and you are accepted by God as righteous in His sight because of the righteousness of Christ alone given to you by faith? May our Lord and Master Jesus Christ find us awake, alert, and faithfully about the business of the work He has given us to do while we wait for Him to come or to call us home. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us even uh, prophecy uh, 
these, these things, these words of prophecy that, that teach us uh, what was to come, what is to come, and not so we can speculate or calculate or try to have inside knowledge that uh, puffs us up with pride, but that we might be prepared, that we might learn to stay awake, that we might learn to trust in you above all things, even to trust in your word, which can never fail, which can never never pass away. We thank you that your word is even more uh, indestructible than the universe, that all these things that we look at, the heavens and the earth may pass away, but your words never fail, never pass away, never fail to come to pass, never let us down. They can always be trusted in completely and explicitly. We thank you especially that because of that, your gospel, the gospel of your son can be trusted in and believed no matter what the world around us, no matter what the skeptics say, your word, your gospel cannot fail because you change not and you fail not and nothing you say will fall to the ground. And we ask this morning that you would give us grace to stay awake. Give us grace to be about your business, to about doing your will, that, that our meat and drink, just like it was for your son, would be doing the will of our Father in heaven, seeking to do your will in all things by the power of your Spirit. And we do pray that if anybody here this morning doesn't yet know you, if they are yet in their sins and not in Christ by faith, that you might make today the day of their salvation, that you might open their eyes, they might see their sin, they might see their need for Christ the Savior, they might look to him and have life in his name. For we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.